How is everybody this morning? Doing well. It is great to be with you all this morning. Now, a long time ago, um, there was this woman, and she she approached uh, her pastor, who was uh, the 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 great pastor and theologian John Wesley, and she approached him, and she and she said, "I uh, I believe I know what my talent is. I know uh, I believe I, I I believe that God has talented me or given me the talent of speaking my mind." To which John Wesley replied. I think God wouldn't mind if you buried that talent. But there is such a thing as an unexpressed thought. Is there not? Right, can we all relate to that? Uh, but at the same time, I think we would all agree that we could probably all, at one time or another, struggle with that idea, even within ourselves. Is that we have thoughts that should be unexpressed, yet they find expression you know, in us, Right? But this is an idea that James uh, turns to now in chapter 3. If you do have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 3. But he's returning to an idea that he introduced uh, back in chapter 1. In verse 26, James said that, that if anyone does not know how to bridle his tongue, he says that this person's religion or their worship of God is worthless without knowing how to bridle their tongue. And he's returning to that now, and he's going to unpack this idea of how destructive our tongues can be. When it comes to unexpressed thoughts, the damage that can come about, but also there's blessing that can come about from our tongue. But as he lays this out, he lays out the destructive nature that our tongues can have. That we in no way have been talented by God with an ability to speak our minds because our minds are full of a bunch of foolish things. And I think of foolish things that I've said or things that have come out of my mouth. They've come from my mind of, well, which can be full of foolishness a lot of the time. Um, but it's important for us to gather this idea about what comes out of our mouth. But before we get there, I want to share with us. I did some research this week on how much we actually talk um, uh, we, on average, the average person says around 20,000 words per day. Now, there are some people that say more. There are some people that certainly talk less. But on average, you could say that the average person says about 20,000 words per day. That comes down to about 140 words per minute. In our, in our waking hours, the way I did this, I crunched some numbers. Me and my mother-in-law and my wife is there and and I'm asking them their thoughts on this. My wife's like, if you're doing numbers, I'm out. Y'all just go ahead. So we're working through this, and we just figured, all right, well, we're, it can't be 24 hours a day because we sleep about eight. Right? But we're certainly not talking. If we're commuting to work and we're in the car, we're not really talking unless we're with somebody. But kind of doing some of the math, taking some of that out. But I figured that we talk, have about 780 talkable minutes of the day. And if we speak 40, 140 words per minute then that comes out to roughly 143 minutes of our day. Two hours and 23 minutes of our day, our waking, talkable minutes, we spend talking with our mouth open. That comes down to about a fifth of our lives we spend talking. So we have opportunity to say a lot. We talk a lot. There's a lot that comes out of our mouth. But the question becomes, with all of that talking, how much of that talking is a blessing? How much of it is a cursing? How much of it is uplifting? How much of it is damaging? But the tongue that we use in that talking becomes a very powerful member of our body and what it's capable of doing, as we're going to look at now this morning. So in chapter 3, James begins here in verse 1. He says, Now not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now he's about to start unpacking this around our tongue and the power of the tongue, but he begins addressing, it seems as if he's addressing the teacher. But in that day and time, as the church has been birthed and, and it's beginning anew and there's house churches being formed and people are gathering together, there's the need for teachers, of course, but also in that day and time, and not to say that there's not today, but the teacher was one that was elevated greatly. Uh, in Jewish society and Jewish tradition, you had the religious leaders or the Pharisee who were the teachers of the law. 
So when Jewish believers would go to synagogue, uh, actually at that point in time, the teacher wouldn't stand and everybody else would sit. The teacher would sit and everybody else would stand. I don't know how we reverse that, um, but maybe try that one Sunday. If I sat and y'all stood, how would that go? Anyways, I mean, maybe digress there. But nonetheless... They elevated the status of the teacher. So you would find, it seems, as James is writing this, speaking to teachers, he says that you shouldn't seek to become teachers, or not many of you should become teachers. Though you may desire to, you need to be careful in that. And the reason why is because he says, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now the question that comes to mind for me is why? Why is the teacher judged with greater strictness? One, because they're, they're sharing or they're teaching God's truth. And we should be able to rightly handle God's truth. There's a great responsibility with handling God's word and conveying God's word to people. But secondly, is the teacher, any teacher, exercises great influence over the people that they're seeking to teach. You know, and there's reason for that. There's reason why certain things and certain ideas are being pushed in certain places I mean, not to make this in a way about our public school system, but in many places there are things being taught now and in influencing young minds because of the great power that the teacher has over the ones that they're teaching. So there's a responsibility that lies there, but then also for the teacher, there's also the idea that we must practice what we preach. For the teacher of God's Word, if I'm up here and I'm teaching you things, but I'm not doing the things that I'm teaching... That would make me a hypocrite. My teaching would be hypocritical. You would be prone to not listen to what I have to say. If you find me outside of these walls, acting, speaking maliciously, and slandering, and and backbiting, and you see me portraying an image contrary to what I would say God's Word says of you, I would be hypocritical, and you probably wouldn't come back. Rightly so. You shouldn't come back if you find me outside these walls living and acting and speaking in such a way that's contrary to what I would teach. So there's a responsibility there. The teacher will be judged with greater strictness. But there is no, in this concept here, there is no for those that can't do, teach. For the teacher of God's word, no, you practice what you preach. If not, you will be judged uh, in many ways. So he says there, Because of this, don't desire to be a teacher if your heart is not in the right place to be teaching. And then verse 2, now he says, For we all stumble in many ways. Now the teacher is still in view here, as the teacher is part of all. But what he's getting at is, is don't put the teacher on the pedestal. The teacher stumbles, stumbles in many ways, just like we all do. But he says, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. So he's saying the idea with perfection is not sinlessness or blamelessness. The idea is, is maturity or completeness. He's saying if someone does not stumble in what they say, they have matured to a place where they're good, they're complete. But we know that none of us are going to be made complete until the day of Jesus Christ, so no one has arrived. We will continue to stumble in many ways. But we need to understand power we have and the things that we speak and how we stumble in the things that we speak. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 15, just to illustrate this point, I want to give a contrast, if I can, between the good teacher and the bad teacher. You know, and what James is addressing at this point in time as he's writing to these people. In Matthew chapter 15, you have the Pharisees that are coming to Jesus, and again, the Pharisees are the teachers of the law, and they're They're asking Jesus this question and always in an effort to to trip Jesus up, to get him to say something contrary to God's law so they can have something against them. But every time they reveal something false or something broken within themselves. But we have a good picture for the bad teacher here. Um, So Matthew verse chapter 15, I don't have this for you in slides, but if you have your Bible, I'm going to kind of bounce around some of the verses. But... Uh, says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So they're asking this question about tradition. They're not asking question, Why do your disciples not follow the command of God? Why are they breaking the tradition of the elders? As if that has some level of authority over people. 
But it comes down to there, the traditions of the elders is just opinions of men. And the issue at heart there is simply they're not washing their hands before they eat. But the idea that they have is to not wash their hands before they eat. That means that whatever they put in their mouths is defiled because they didn't clean their hands. But that's a tradition of the elders. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 3. It says, And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he begins to unpack how they're breaking that command, or a command of God, with how they honor their father and mother. But what he's getting at is, is you're, you're trying to make a big deal about the opinions and the traditions that you teach and how people aren't doing those things, but you're neglecting God's command and God's word. But then in verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, cause them what they are. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In verse 11, is, this not, is it not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person? Or it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Verse 14, he says of the Pharisees, he says, They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And he said to Peter, he says, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? So you have the religious leaders trying to get on tradition. Jesus says, you're breaking God's command for the sake of your tradition, but you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he makes this theological conclusion and distinctive that it doesn't matter what goes into our mouths. It, what, it's, what matters is what comes out of our mouths and where that comes from is our heart. Later on in Matthew 12, 34, speaking again to the Pharisees, Jesus says this of them, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So as James is about to start talking about the power of the tongue, you and I should realize that the tongue is a member of our body that certainly does have great power. But the problem at issue is not our tongue, it is our heart which directs our tongue. That is the distinction we need to grab hold of. It always comes down to a condition of our heart If our heart is healthy, we're going to say healthy things. If our heart is unhealthy, we're going to not say healthy things. But if you were were curious about the condition of your heart, if you want to know what your heart is like, wear a wire for a week and then play that back. Your mouth will let you know the condition of your heart. So since we talk a lot, And since we do all stumble in many ways, our hearts need to be cleansed often. Now, how do we go about cleansing? Isaiah chapter 6, if you have your Bible turned there, I think this is a wonderful picture for us. As far as finding hearts that are cleansed before the Lord, how to go about that, what that looks like for us. So Isaiah, this is in chapter 6, he's had this vision, he's in the throne room before the Lord, and um, in verse 4 it It says that in the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. In verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah finds himself in the presence of the Lord, and he's not filled with Pride or arrogance that he's able to be there, he understands 100%, I'm in the presence of the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the God of the universe, and he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am it. My life is forfeit. I am about to die because he knows his condition. His condition is that he is a man of unclean lips. And he identifies himself not with his, where he's presently at. He identifies himself with where he dwells, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That people is the Israelite people who at this point in time, Isaiah is about to be sent to speak God's judgment against the people who would, with their lips, proclaim God and proclaim to praise and glorify God, but their hearts are far from Him, as you will see as you study the book of Isaiah. 
and the judgment that God gives. But you have this man, Isaiah, and he understands he's before the Lord, but he knows his condition. I'm a man of unclean lips. But look what happens. He has his, his conviction upon his heart. He has his confession before the Lord, and look how the Lord responds. In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, with Isaiah's mouth, he confesses, I am a man of unclean lips. And as his mouth reveals the condition of his heart, then the seraphim comes. The seraphim, it's interesting there, the seraphim didn't go to the altar and take the coal with his hand. It says that the seraphim used tongs. And with those tongs goes and touches the mouth of Isaiah and cleanses him. The tool with which would be used by the prophet to judge God's people and to speak God's truth is cleansed and it cleanses the whole person. And then verse 8 And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. See, God called Isaiah to be a prophet on his behalf to judge his people. But he could not send Isaiah in the condition in which he was. He had to be cleansed. But Isaiah recognized that need, proclaimed that need, confessed that sin. God cleansed that sin, gave him a pure heart, clean lips. And then God sends him out a willing, faithful heart set apart for the Lord. And God said, now go and say, speak to this people. But our problem is our heart. We need cleansing of our heart before our tongue will follow. But understand that truth. Now that we kind of have that aspect of it, let's go to what James says now about the tongue, understanding the nature of our hearts. So beginning in verse 3, James gives us three illustrations of the tongue. There's two neutral that can be positive or negative, but there's one certainly negative that is also destructive. But in verse 3, he begins, he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. He says, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So the idea there in those illustrations is you have something that is small. Bits and rudders are very small in relation to the greater or larger thing. Right? A bit on a horse, it's a 1,200-pound animal, and it's a small bar. If you don't know, it's probably about that wide, and it's connected to reins, and it goes into the mouth of a horse, and those reins go over its head, and then whoever's riding that horse takes those reins and directs that animal wherever the rider desires for it to go. The same thing, likewise, with the pilot at the helm of a ship. It would turn a wheel that would direct a rudder that is beneath the ship on the back end and would turn it. But there's great power there. It prov- these things provide control to whoever's in control of it. I did some research on an, on an aircraft carrier. That right? would be the largest vessel on the sea in, in, in modern history. Just the sheer size of it. You know, a 100,000 pound vessel floating in the ocean. But whenever a pilot would turn it, says that, that even in, it, it, when it's battle ready and it needs to, it can turn 180 degrees in about three to five minutes. A 100,000 pound, that's millions of pounds, or 100,000 tons, I'm sorry. I mean, that is a huge vessel by a small rudder turning about face. So it provides control, these things. They're small in relation to what they control. But there's also potential, potential for danger. Right? These things direct so they affect the lives of others. Again, if you have a 1,200-pound animal, you know, and, and I'm 200 pounds. Well, that's conservative. Um, for round number six, about that. But you have a 1,200-pound animal and a 200-pound person on top of it. If that person doesn't know how to control that, regardless of the ability to control, 
It can create damage. They can, they can harm the animal. They can harm themselves, other people. Likewise with the ship. If the person that's at the helm of that ship doesn't know how to maneuver when the storm comes, it could wreck the ship. I think of the Titanic. There's just a grand example right there. Not that the pilot didn't know how to, but he couldn't properly see the iceberg. An interesting point after the first service, somebody came to me and he said, said the problem with the, the, uh, that, with the Titanic wasn't necessarily the iceberg. The problem was with the tongue because the engineer of the, ice, of the Titanic was so boastful with his tongue about the creation that he had in engineering that ship that it would never sink. But work through that as you, as you will. Just interesting point that he made. But either positive or negative, our words and our tongue can do grand things. Um, a yes or no from a parent carries a good deal of weight. From a judge, a guilty or not guilty can determine the trajectory of an individual's life based on what is spoken, such as the power of the tongue. Now, to its destructive potential, clear destructive potential in uh, Verse 5b, the second half of verse 5, he says, How great a a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, in in 2018, you have the second largest uh, fire in California's history. Uh, It was called the Ranch Fire. And the way this fire began was there was a rancher who was trying to plug a hole in an underground hornet's nest, and he had a metal stake and a hammer, and he created a spark trying to plug that hole. And from that spark, he lit grass on fire. And that, from that small spark came a fire that began in July of 2018. And it wasn't until January of 2019 that that fire was finally put out. From a spark of a hammer hitting a metal stake. And the damage that it created. It was three firefighters were injured. One was killed. 459,000 acres were burned. 280 structures were destroyed. 257 million in damages, 201 million in fire suppression cost because of a spark off a hammer hitting a metal stake. I mean, that is a pretty powerful illustration for the fire that is in the tongue. To further develop this in verse 6, he gives four phrases to describe the destructive nature of the tongue. He says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Let's look at those four things real quick. It's a world of unrighteousness. If you recall from chapter 1, verse 19, James says that we should be quick to to listen but slow to speak. Why should we be slow to speak? He says because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Proverbs 10, 19-20 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. He understands that if I say this now, it's going to have lasting effects. So the prudent man considers his words. The foolish man would just speak whatever comes to mind. And there's transgression is not lacking. Verse 20 says, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. See the value in what the righteous have to say, but the, the worthlessness of what the unrighteous would say. Romans 3, 13 and 14. This is how the unrighteous speak, as Paul writes of the unrighteous man. He says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is the description of how the unrighteous speak and use their tongue. It is a world of unrighteousness. And then it stains the whole body. Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion. Why? That it may give grace to those who hear. The reason we don't let corrupting talk come out of our mouth is because we should be giving grace to those people that hear. We should be building people up, not tearing people down. But it stains our body, that's your body, my body, whenever we're speaking things that are of corrupting talk, when we're not building up. 
If we're proclaiming, back to the overall theme of James's letter, if we're proclaiming one thing, that we love Christ, that we're a Christ follower, that we're a believer, that we have faith, that should manifest itself in the way we live our life. But if our life is lived in such a way that doesn't match that faith, it stains our body. If we're not giving grace to people in the way we speak. Ephesians 5.4, it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place. Now, how easy is it to crudely joke? How easy is it to, to be in a, in a circle, you know, on the job site, you know, or in the break room, you know, at work in some way, and you just get into this conversation with other coworkers and just filthiness and crude joking begin to come out? And how we can, to save face in a way in that circumstance, is either laugh at it or join into it. He says, these things are out of place. Why are they out of place? Because it's not the image that God created you and I to behold. God created us to behold an image that is righteous and right standing before the Lord. God said, said you should be holy for I am holy. That should manifest itself in the way we speak. Otherwise, it stains the whole body. Again, I go back to whatever I say here. If I walk out of this room and I go somewhere else and I just start speaking filthiness, if you hear me telling a dirty joke like I did as a teenager, that's not in the right, it's not in step with what I would proclaim. And then it set on fire, it set on fire the entire course of life. Benjamin Franklin said, A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. I think it's important to note here that when we think of it sets on fire the entire course of life, what can happen with a wrong word or when we say something wrong. In our day and age, there's such a thing called cancel culture. But I do want to point out this, that if we are speaking God's truth according to God's word and you're canceled for that thing, praise the Lord for that cancellation. You have found yourself being persecuted for his name's sake, and God's word says you will be blessed in that doing. So when it comes to opportunity to proclaim God's truth in any platform you may have at your disposal, you stand on God's truth, you proclaim God's truth, and you will find blessing. But conversely to that, as we do use our tongue, there are things that we can say that go out there and cannot be brought back in. And as much as it's important that we think about what we speak from our mouths. I think in our day and age, in 2023, we can equate what we speak with our mouth to what we type on a computer and hit send. As James is writing this, there is no social media. There's none of that that exists. He's not writing this with a mind to, in the future, this is going to exist. So how do I address that? We can apply it there. What you type on a computer and you send out in this world equates to what you say from your mouth. And if you're quick enough nowadays, they give you the ability to delete a tweet or grab that email back if you're quick enough, but it's out there. And if not careful, the things we say in those areas have lasting consequences. Careers have absolutely been ruined by what people say on a computer. In some ways, we can feel as if we're safe behind a screen or on a keyboard and typing things. We're not actually saying it in front of someone, but there's still lasting consequences that come. And you see it all the time. So it sets on fire the entire course of life. And then it's set on fire by hell. Now it's interesting he uses this word here, set on fire by hell. Uh, the word in the Greek is Gehenna. Uh, and it certainly means the fire of judgment. The place where the, the wicked will eternally go is the fire of Gehenna. But also, as James is writing this, his readers are going to immediately identify this with this because just south of the city of Jerusalem was the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was known as Gehenna because in that valley is where they would take all the filth, the trash, dead animals and such from the city, and they would take it out. That would, be, that would equate to Jerusalem's dump. It would go into the Valley of Gehenna, and this is where those things would be burned. So whenever the residents of the city would see this putrid smoke rise on the southern horizon, they would know that the filth of their city is being consumed. James equates this with the tongue. Is that when we speak coarsely 
when filth leaves our mouth, when unwholesome talk comes out of our mouth, it's a smoke signal, a putrid smoke signal to the world that what's being consumed is not righteousness. Whether the world cognizantly thinks of it that way or not. Because if you're in a circle of people and they're all crudely joking, there's profanity coming out of their mouth, and you talk like them, what would they think of you? But do they know the faith that you proclaim? If they don't know you to be a Christian, you just look like them, and you're there. But if you are a Christian, shouldn't they know that you're a Christian? And if they know that you're a Christian, wouldn't you, shouldn't you represent that by the way you speak? But the tongue, it would stain the body. It's a world of unrighteousness. It can set on fire the entire course of life. It's set on fire by hell. Now verse 7, he goes to nature for his illustrations. And how we can tame nature, but we can't tame the tongue. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Restless, it never sleeps. Left to its own, it will continue on. No human being can tame it. Verse 9, he says, now, the double-minded person, he says that with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. But it's important to note that what he says, he doesn't say that this can happen. He doesn't say that we may bless or we may curse. He says that we do. We do bless and we do curse. There's no getting around what he says. We do this thing, but we should not do this thing, but yet we do. Here's a practical example of that. Is we can come here on a Sunday morning and we can sing songs and we can praise the Lord. We can encourage one another with our words. But then after service, we can go to jalapeno tree and we can sit down and we can have lunch. But we get a waitress that's having a really bad day. And her service is horrible. And with the same tongue that we would glorify the Lord with, we will curse this person for how horrible their service is. Or we complain about the message that we just heard. But that's a practical example of how quick we can do that. For me, uh, just a handful of weeks ago, I'm building steps up to our house. I'm trying to get this done before our baby comes. And, and I'm working on these steps. It's Saturday, Sunday afternoon. I'm finally finishing these up. So that morning, I'm teaching. I'm proclaiming God's Word and His truth. And then that afternoon, I'm putting the finishing touches on these steps. And I get to the very last board. I'm tired. My mind is gone. I don't measure twice and cut once. I just go ahead and make that cut, lay that board up there, and it's an inch short, and it's the last board. I was very frustrated. That frustration bowled over into anger, and then what came out of my mouth was not wholesome talk. It wasn't nice. It wasn't honoring to the Lord. It didn't honor my wife who was on the porch, my mother-in-law, my daughter. It didn't honor my father-in-law. But my heart was angered in that moment because a board was cut short. I was inconvenienced. But earlier that morning, I would bless. And later on that day, I would curse an inanimate object because of my failure. But that's how easy and how quickly our tongue can set on fire or stain the body. I had to seek my wife's forgiveness, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. Say, hey, I'm sorry for speaking like that in front of you. But that's how quickly that can happen. We can bless with it. We can curse with it. Then verse 11 and, a 12, 11 and 12, there's two rhetorical questions he draws again from nature. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The answer is no. He says, neither can salt, a salt pond yield fresh water. Your tongue, my tongue, cannot do both of these things. But yet it does. The only thing in nature that doesn't do that, 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 that is double-minded, is duplicitous, is our tongue. 
Maybe not the only thing in nature, but a grand example. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So how is that? How is death and life? Let's say figuratively speaking, death and life, on the death side of that, what can our words do? Reputations can be ruined by words, lies that we speak, slander that we say about somebody. Churches can split. Churches can die by people within that church speaking maliciously against one another. Many of you may have experienced that at some point in your life. I've experienced that twice in my life within the church body. It's malicious speech, divisive speech against people within God's body kills the body. Death happens. Marriage relationships, friendships can end based on things that we say. Literally speaking now, can our tongues cause literal death? I think of a phrase that that I heard been said to me. I've probably said at some point in my life. I know you have, and I know you've heard it. But it sticks in stones, may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Anybody ever said that? Go ahead and make the confession. I've said it. That's an outright lie. As we've just learned, it is not a biblical concept in any shape or form. Words most certainly can hurt The bitter word that would be spoken against you in some way, in many ways, can be carried through a lifetime. As I'm working through regeneration right now, and I go through that process of of inventorying my life, how I've hurt people, but also how people have hurt me, and I'm reminded of things that have been said to me, or how I'd been labeled a long time ago, and I can see the effect of that label throughout my life. And it blows my mind that that exists. As I work through that, it's like, how am I still affected by what somebody said way back then? That's how damaging words can be. And it can be so damaging that people would take their lives over what people say. I did some research on teenage suicide. It's hard to determine why. Because suicide, you know, finding that out is after the fact. You can't ask them. But every list that I found and every article that I read that would list reasons why people commit suicide on every single one of those lists for a teenager, it's because of some kind of ridicule or what someone has said against them, either to their face or on social media. But death and life are in the power of the tongue. But now I want to ask the question, who, who does God use? Because we've looked at, here's, here's the picture. we got the tongue. I mean, don't go cut it out. But could we do well without a tongue? Yeah. <laughs> but we could also not do well without a tongue. But what good can come from the tongue? Who does God use? Does, he, does, does God, throughout His Word, use great orators? God gifts men to speak, certainly. And He uses men to speak great things. But consider Moses. In, Mo, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10... After God has called Moses, hey, you're going to go speak to my people, what did Moses say to him? Moses says, I'm not eloquent. He says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And what does God say to Moses in that? Moses says, I don't talk good, God. I can't go do this thing. What does God say? God says this. He said, who, make, who, who, is made man, who is made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I will be with your mouth. And teach you what you shall speak. Moses does continue on to argue. I, I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. I don't talk good. Finally, God's like, he's just frustrated with him. He's like, you know what? Your brother Aaron talks really good. And here he comes right now. Aaron will be your mouth. And you will be like God to him. My prayer is that God will be my mouth. That he will be like God to me as he is God. One of my prayers every time I get on this pulpit to teach God's word is I ask the Lord to be my mouth. I don't want my opinion coming out because I will lead you astray. Paul is also another example. He, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, Paul says, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
He says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He says, but it's in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that, the reason for that is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What was the struggle with the religious leader? Is they have their tradition and their wisdom that they created, and they want people to follow that so that they're elevated. Jesus says, no, you're a hypocrite. You're casting off the command of God for your tradition. And here Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I didn't come to you in such a way. I came to you in the power of the Spirit so that your faith will rest in that, not in what I have to say. But where does deception come from? Remember from a few weeks ago, we read this in Colossians 2.4. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude or deceive you with plausible arguments. Same word that he uses there. I didn't come with plausible arguments, but people will seek to deceive you with plausible, fine-sounding arguments. Paul says, it's not how I came. Not with profound opinions of men. I came in the power of the Spirit. By his own admission, Paul said formerly, he was a blasphemer. Paul spoke evil from his mouth against the Lord. But what happened in his life? If no human being can tame the tongue, who tames it? God does. See, James tells us that the entire course of life is set on fire. It's set on fire by hell. But you and I, if we come to Christ, we put our faith in Christ, our tongue doesn't have to be set on fire by hell. It can be set on fire by heaven. And differences begin to be made in your life, in my life, in our lives, in other people's lives as we speak and proclaim truth and God's glory, not lies and maliciousness and opinions of men. Men can tame animals and fire for that matter. You can tame an animal and turn a worker. Or you can tame an animal and get a worker instead of a destroyer. You can tame a flame and you can get power. But no one can tame the tongue, but God can. And when God tames the tongue, wonderful things happen. Prime example. In my study, this was a wonderful place the Lord took me. Turn to Acts chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. This is the day of Pentecost. You have the disciples and you have 120 people. They're in this room and they're all praying together. Jesus said, you go here and you wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And they're up there and they're praying and they're waiting. And in verse 2, Luke tells us, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house and divided what? Tongues as of fire. Appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. James describes the tongue as a fire over and over and the destructive nature of a fire, but when God is involved in that and the Holy Spirit descends, I don't think it's, 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 I lost the word, but it's no coincidence. That how the tongue is described, but here when the Holy Spirit comes, it comes in the form of a tongue on fire. But when it lands in the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens to men's speech? They speak as the Spirit would lead them to speech. If you know from this point on in the account of Acts at Pentecost, every one of them begins speaking in a language not their own. For the purpose of those that would hear, would hear in their own language what's being said. And then Peter walks out on that balcony and he gives, next to the Sermon on the Mount, the most great, greatest, best sermon ever given. And 3,000 people are saved that day and the church is, church is birthed by the power of a man's speech, but a man's speech empowered by God. That is the difference that our tongue can make. Yes, we can bless with it. We can curse with it. But when we put our minds and our hearts cleansed and purified before the Lord, there's no limit to what He would do with your words. And it's not reserved for the teacher. Don't look to me. Don't look to Brandon or anyone on this stage as if we're special with our words because we have a place to proclaim them in the pulpit. Your words matter wherever you're at and you can have more conversation in places that do not exist in this space. You have such a power within you if you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if your heart is positioned before Him in humility and it is cleansed, He will use your mouth to proclaim His glory and His truth. I skipped this earlier, 
by accident, 1 Peter 2.9. This is for all of us. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's not just the teacher who proclaims God's excellencies. It is the believer indwelt by his spirit who goes out as a witness and proclaims those things. After Pentecost and the whole coming of the Spirit, you find that 12 uneducated common men go out and turn the world upside down. And the same can be true today. There are more than 12 people in this room all indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But if we all would position our hearts before the Lord and walk out of here with a mind and a heart to proclaim His truth, we could turn our family upside down. We could turn our communities upside down. Yes, the revival could happen. That could go out. A nation could be turned upside down. And by golly, it needs it. But I will go back to this every single time as we work through this letter. I hope my teaching and my heart is prompting this every single time. None of that happens if it does not happen here first. The problem is your heart. The problem is my heart. And if these don't change, neither will our speech. And if our speech doesn't change, we look like everybody else and nothing will ever change. It will remain the same. But may it begin here first and go to our families, go to our communities and trust the Lord where it goes from there. Now we'll close with this, a practical takeaway. Warren Wearsby calls these the 12 words that can transform your life, and they're rather simple. When I came to these, I thought, I'm, I don't know about that, but I settled on, we need a practical takeaway. Here's a practical takeaway. So 12 words that can transform your life. In all of our relationships, if we would say these words often, but mean them every single time, we will find a difference being made in our lives. And it begins first with, Please. Just simply saying please. The second and third words is thank you. Please and thank you. But oftentimes we can tell this in our kids. We can just, just sew this into just the common vernacular of just being respectful and being nice. Please and thank you. But they can carry weight. If we genuinely mean this and ask please or say thank you for things that we receive, they can soften situations and attitudes. Now the fourth and fifth is I'm sorry. Those two words in all of your relationships and your friendships, certainly within your marriages, often I have opportunity to go to my wife and say I'm sorry for the way I've acted, the thing that I've said, how I seem to maybe not be helping as much as I should in some way. When I sense that, I can say, hey, I'm sorry, babe, for missing that. And that settles her heart and her mind. Any doubt that she may feel about what I'm thinking or for what I want to do or how the help I want to give can settle that by simply saying, hey, I'm sorry for this thing. Such as begins the amends process. And then I love you. And we should, we should resist the urge to romanticize those three words. I think too often we romanticize I love you. Yes, there is a romantic love between a husband and a wife or people who are betrothed to one another. For the teenagers in the room, if you're dating somebody, do not tell them you love them. Because I, I, I can, with 99% certainty, assure you, you don't love them. There's a hormonal and chemical thing that's going on and you just really like them a lot. But love in that sense is serious. But for the rest of us, we can be saying, I love you in a non-romantic way and mean that. It's interesting when you study the New Testament, you find maybe two or three passages. In Ephesians, Colossians, Peter addresses it where he's specific to how we should love our spouses. But the vast majority of the New Testament, when it speaks of loving one another, they're not writing about loving our spouse or our family. They're writing about loving those that are in the household of faith. 
I can say and mean it to every one of you, not in a weird way, that I love you. And I would desire the same from you. And that is in keeping with God's word. And that carries weight to know that we're loved. And then lastly, the last four is I'm praying for you. Sometimes there is no greater encouragement than to be told that someone is praying for you. Whether you ask for it or not, such encouragement even from my heart to know people are interceding to the God of heaven and earth on my behalf. What a wonderful thing that we're able to do for one another. Sometimes whenever I'm struggling with a text, I'll send my notes to a trusted friend that I know is walking with the Lord and knows the word, and I can send him my notes and just say, hey, what do you think about this? And he says, man, this or that. And then he'll say, I'm praying for you. And that settles nervousness in my heart and my anxiety around what I may be teaching to know that someone's praying that it may be God-honoring. So please, thank you, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm praying for you are practical words and phrases that we can begin to say in our relationships and you will find it begin to make a difference in your own heart and in the lives and relationships that we have. Simple way to go about it. Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Think through that the next time your service at a restaurant is horrible. What might the day be like for that waitress or waiter? How might you bless them with your words instead of curse them with your murmurs at the table when they're not there? That one stings a little bit. Because I do it to confess, and that's wrong. It's out of place. But this morning, we'll, we will close with this. I know... We've gone over, but when do I not go over? Um, but this morning when I got up and I'm sitting in the chair and I'm just having some time reading, uh, right now we're beginning Proverbs. Just a challenge to you um, as far as our church devotionals. Um, but I challenge you to go to Proverbs and read and note how many Proverbs are specific to our speech, our tongue, and the words that we say. There are countless Proverbs to deal directly with our tongue. Uh, but I read this this morning, and it was fitting and encouraging for me. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27, he says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from, your, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. I was like, man, that's... After preparing the message, I just landed. I was like, I think I'm going to end with this. But then he says this, Look... Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. For the believer, our trajectory should be heaven. And if our minds and our hearts are pointed toward heaven in that direction, we will find ourselves with hearts being guarded with all vigilance, Our speech will change from deviousness to life-giving because our eyes are fixed on the place that we're going. And it doesn't matter what kind of service we get here because, you know what, for the life of the believer, we're not here to be served. We're here to serve. And if we lose that focus, we will murmur under our breath or out loud how put off we are with how we're not being served. May we adjust our hearts.